Hi, John. Oh, hello, Dan. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. This is a neat, neat voice you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> what's, uh, what's that about? Well, it doesn't really have a reason. There's no real reasoning behind it. Okay. It's just one of the many voices that I can do. I have a whole file folder of voices. Mm. I can a- access at any time. Oh, I like that. You do sound a little congested still. No, 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 no. It's all just in the... It's all a put on? It's all a put on, just okay. in the, the manner of the voice. All right. It just kind of goes right with it. All right. What would you describe this voice as, Dan? It's a little bit Rod Serling. It's a little bit... Yeah, yeah, I can see the Rod uh, Serling thing. A little bit uh, Clint Eastwood, maybe. No. It could be a little bit uh, uh, Ace Ventura Pet Detective. No. Hmm. Well, that's all I've got. <laughs> I, I don't know if I like it. Well, I'll stop doing it. <laughs> can you? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so what's new? What's new up there? <clears throat> not a lot not a whole not a whole ton no same as usual same yeah. same 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 trying to sell my rv dan so i'm dealing with a lot of 90 year olds um you know i've marked the price down on the rv quite considerably from where i started do they have to I'm, do a local pickup or will you travel to them no i'm not going to travel to anybody all right I mean, that's a fair question, though, don't you think? It is. It is. And back when it was fully priced, I had considered getting in and driving it down to somebody. But now it is. I've reduced the price to the point that um, I'm not obviously prepared to drive it to somebody in Idaho. But also, I'm less and less interested in um, dealing with the whole Craigslist tire kicker. Um, you know, I get a lot of responses. I get a lot of people out here and they're like, oh, well, you know, this needs replaced. And I'm like, you know what, man, it's 43 years old and it's $8,000. Like if you want something that doesn't need anything replaced, go buy something that was made in 1999 or 2005. You can find those vehicles just as easily. Like this is an enthusiast vehicle. It's going to need some things fixed. But that isn't the game of looking at things on Craigslist, apparently. Apparently, there's a whole a whole universe of people. And un- unfortunately for me, I don't want to sell it to someone that I don't feel like it's the right truck for them. Right. So I get these guys that are, you know, 87. Their wife just died. They're selling everything and they want to get an RV and drive across America on one last hurrah, go see their grandkids. And they come and kick the tires and I'm like, look, what you want is an RV that was built on a Ford drivetrain in the last 15 years and it has a microwave in it and you can park it in a Walmart. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what you want. You don't want this. This is a specialty thing. This is a thing for people that want to have a weird, aesthetically cool, fun life. You just want to be a turtle and you need a rig. So why are you looking at this? Like, what's your cra- – and, you know, it's not like all these people are – it's not like these old men are penny – I'm sorry. They're not poor. They're just penny pinchers. So they're like, this one's $8,000. It's like, don't – so, but the problem is if I were, 
if I had no scruples, yeah, I would be on the hard sell with these guys. Like, this is the one for you, man. You're going to love. Right. You, this. If you just wanted to unload the thing. Yeah. Your grandkids are going to love this. If you don't get it, you're hurting your grandkids. <laughs> but what I say to them is like, you know, go down to the, pick up a copy of the RV trader and find a thing that's 19 feet long and has one bed in it. Cause that's all you want. And then they toddle off. They get back into their cars and drive away. And I'm like, ah, God, why is this so difficult? Anyway, it's frustrating. It's one of the many things that are frustrating me right now, Dan. I'm not unfrustrated. Well, that's a bad place to, to stay for too long. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm. What's going on with you? You were You intimated to me that just a few moments ago, that there was something about the way that you it's ran not, your I don't know studio. if it's interesting, if it's worth mentioning or not, but I, I get... it's interesting to me. Well, so um, a lot of the time when you're ready to record something, uh-huh. you will message me, <clears throat> and a lot of the time you'll do it in, in the Skype app, which is, no one likes that app, but you'll it's fine. And uh-huh. you'll message me that. I don't see that. Because the way that I'm all set up here is from from my old days of recording. I used to do a billion years ago. I used to do a lot of shows where we had multiple guests on at the same time. So it might it was like a panel type show. So it might be me and and at least one or two, if not up to four. In some cases, there was even think even six people on a show. That wasn't unusual. And to record that, the way that I came up with, and I didn't invent this, but it, you know, it was the way that worked for me, was to get a... Um, I initially started with a mixer and then upgraded to a, this thing called an Apollo. Uh, but it would take all the inputs as if the people were in person right here in the studio. But instead of having human beings talking into microphones and plugging into the mixer, I had ancient mac minis that i got secondhand um and the audio in and out going to and from the mixer into each of those so for each guest that i would have including just a regular co-host but everybody who wasn't physically here which is usually most people most of the time then the connections would be coming in and out of the mixer and going to these dedicated mac minis and each on each mac mini i would run skype so Hmm. i would um i remote to that using just screen sharing. I used to have a dedicated keyboard and, and screen with a KVM switch on it, but you know, who needs that? And so now I just remote to those machines. And so when I remote to the machine, then I launch Skype on it and make, you know, make the connections. Then I hear you in my headphones and microphone, but nothing is actually going on on my local computer. That's in front of me, except when I remote to those machines, then I can see the screens in the window on my main computer. So like when you message me uh, on Skype, I don't see that or hear that unless I happen to have already connected to that machine and, and I'm sitting there staring at that remote screen. Whereas I think what you're probably doing is running like a normal human running Skype on the machine that has your microphone and everything else connected to it. And you're just talking. And I realize that there isn't probably a huge advantage doing it the way that I still do it, except I can 
uh, I can, you know, the, the Apollo that I use has these really, really great plugins and stuff built into it. So I actually am doing real time compression and noise gate and a EQ and other things on you in real time, which saves a ton of time in post-production. I don't have to like EQ you and compress and all this stuff in post-production. It's just done on the fly, hot recording it that way. Uh, so anyway, that's what I was going to tell you, but now everyone else has heard it too. Huh? Well, no, now everyone knows. Everyone knows. And that's because on this show, we don't record, you don't record your end and then send it to me. You just, um, you just record. I record everything here. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I do, I do four podcasts now. Yeah. Two of them I record locally and two of them I just do it over Skype. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there was a time, uh, a long time ago, when people seemed really, really, really concerned about audio quality yeah. in podcasting. Yeah. And um, Merlin and I bucked that trend pretty hard. And just he just recorded me on Skype. And I think there are still people that are bothered by the sound quality. Are you bothered by the sound quality? No, it's usually pretty good. It's usually pretty good. On a very rare occasion, uh, there'll be some artifacts or something like that. And there's only been a couple times when I had to, uh, when I had to actually like edit that part out or or where so, where some content got missed. Oh, where it went like buried me. Yeah, and it was just I just couldn't save it. That has happened yeah. though. But but it's not a thing where the where my voice sounds thinner. I mean, I think yeah, that, yeah, uh, you, yeah. There's definitely. I mean, I'm used to that though. But there's a lot less dynamic range through this than there would be if if you were recording it and sending me your recording. I see. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I certainly could start doing that now that I now that I'm set up to do it. Although, you know, it's not even really. Like an uh, like a uh, an extra step beyond it, just being an extra step. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, it's an extra step. We could it do would it. Be an extra step for you. I don't care. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I'd like. I mean, I would <laughs> like it better. Maybe maybe we just release the good version to the Patreon supporters, uh, and everybody else gets this one. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't mind editing two shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I could actually, what I could do is I could in, intentionally lower the quality of the non Patreon version and everybody who supports it gets like a really high quality version of the regular show as well as the bonus. Mm. And then everybody else gets like a 50 K <laughs> version of it, you know, with, <laughs> with artifacts added. Yeah, like uh, like a like a record kind of <laughs> yeah, where we both sound like we're talking in a tin can. I think I might I might actually prefer that <laughs> a little the old timey version of the show. Yeah, For those of you who really miss the '40s and '30s, you know, just like radio noise. <laughs> My granddad used to tell me that they <laughs> had their um, crystal radio, and they would put the little whatever they were using as a speaker, I don't know if it was an earphone or what it was, but they would put that into a jar, which would help amplify the sound. And they, as a family would gather around the jar in the evenings to listen to the radio, sit at the table and, and listen to the jar. That's pretty great. Yeah. That's pretty great. I've never heard, I've never heard the jar 
story. But, um, but yeah, I mean, all, both my mother and father sat around the radio at night with their fathers listening to them. Not, I guess not a speaker in a jar, but just listening to a normal speaker. But then you're, 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 your people are from Pennsylvania, right? So yeah, no, I did things so, different up in, in the Appalachians. Yeah, they sure did. <laughs> the speakers were smaller and the jars were bigger. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, I, I don't know why they did that. Maybe they couldn't afford an actual radio with, um, with a real speaker. I don't, I don't know. The That's story. what it sounds like. Yeah. It sounds, I mean, you know, it sounds like they couldn't afford a real, but wouldn't that be, speaker. wouldn't that be weird in your, in a single lifetime to have seen essentially the, the birth of radio, you know, automobiles, computers, the internet, all of this stuff, all of the stuff that we have now to have seen in, in a single lifetime. You know, like our kids are born into a world where iPads and iPhones and everything else is the, in the presence of the internet is just ubiquitous. It's just... Of course, of course, you've always had that, and, and the idea of a world without it seems bizarre to them. We were just talking about it. My, my kids were asking me, like, was there a time before this? <laughs> like, of course. The before times? Yeah. Like, what did you do? Like, how did you, how did you watch stuff on TV if you couldn't just pick the thing that you wanted? I said, well, we just watched whatever, whatever we were lucky enough that came on the TV. We would watch that until we eventually got a VCR, then we could kind of choose. We would like to say thank you very much to our sponsor today. It's Away. They are a team of thinkers, seekers, and designers. And their focus and inspiration is movement, times of transition, exploration, and surprise. They create special objects that are at home on the road that carry you forward. They make your trip easier and in a small way, hey, make your life better. They were started by two friends from New York. They found themselves at JFK. They had dead phones. They had delayed flights. And they came up with an idea. They said, what if our luggage had power? And this is the birth of the away carry-on. This is luggage that will charge your stuff. But it doesn't. that's not the gimmick. Like That's something it does. But this is really, really great luggage. I have this luggage. I have traveled with it. And I can tell you from my own direct experience, since that's what I think is the most important in, with something, that it is fantastic. It's resilient. It's resourceful. And it has become essential to the way that people, including me, travel today. They use high-quality materials. They offer their luggage at a much lower price compared to other brands. How You know the way. It's the magic way. Cutting out the middleman and selling directly to us, the consumers. They have a variety of colors. They have four sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, and the large. The large is for like extended stays. The one I have is just a straight-up carry-on. I'm a very good packer. So I can go on a trip for like five nights with just this carry-on. And even I think if you're not that great of a packer, you could still do that. Because they have these really great compartments inside. They've got a zipper compartment on one side. They've got the little compression straps on the thing. It's made out of German polycarbonate, which is super strong. It's impact resistant, and it's essentially weightless. If you pick up a suitcase or a carry-on, and it's heavy, and you realize it's empty, and it's heavy before you even put your stuff in it, stop there and, and, and go get something else, like the away carry-on, which is super light. Their compression system, like I said, it's awesome. 
They've got the 360-degree spinner wheels, four of them. So you can be one of those cool people who, when you're waiting in line, instead of dragging the suitcase behind you, you just hold it next to you upright, your arm comfortable, not hurting your back, not aggravating your shoulder, just walking and it goes right next to you. Anytime I do that in an airport, I feel like, I don't know, James Bond. TSA approved combo lock built into the top, a removable washable laundry bag that keeps your dirty clothes separate from your clean ones, and they can charge stuff. Now the charger is removable. And that became some kind of a point of contention with the TSA. They said, oh, well, it's got a battery because it has a battery. It has to be removable. So they said, fine, they made them all removable. So if you get one of these things, it has a removable battery, no big deal. But it's able to charge cell phones, tablets, e-readers, anything that's powered by a USB cord. And one charge of the Away carry-on will charge your phone, your iPhone, five times. If anything ever breaks, they'll fix it or replace it for you for life. And the best part of this is a 100-day free trial. Live with it, travel with it, take it with you, and and really use it. And if you don't like it, no questions asked, they'll give you a full refund anytime within the first 100 days. You can't beat that. And they even have a retail store in New York City. So if you if you happen to be in New York, you can go there and you can check these things out in person or take my word for it. I love it. I love mine. I use it all the time. Free shipping on any way order within the lower 48 states and 20 bucks off a suitcase. Isn't that cool? Away travel, A-W-A-Y, awaytravel.com slash roadwork and use the promo code roadwork when you're checking out and you'll get 20 bucks off a suitcase. Super cool. Can't beat it. Go check it out. I, I said to my dad, when my dad was about 85. He was... Um, he had moved into an assisted living facility where everybody else in there was also, you know, in their 80s and 90s. Right. <clears throat> and he was born in 1921. So, um, so he was, uh, when he was born, let's see, there were Model T's, um, Certainly there were airplanes right. and um, telephones, but, um, but you know, still a lot of horses on the roads. Um, you know, most kids did not go all the way through high school. It was before the, it was before the roaring twenties and before the, the, um, stock market collapse, you know, before the depression, all mm-hmm. these things. Right. And I said, you know, I, I want you to go around the old folks home and ask everybody this question. If you could divide your 80 year old lives in half, um, or 85 year old lives, what was the half that saw the most, change was it from 1920 oh, right. to 1965 or was it from 1965 to 19 or to 2005 um because it seemed like the first half of that 1920 to 1965 was all the big technology you know we went from biplanes to to 747 or to big jets, not 747, right. but, um, we went, we, uh, like harnessed the atom. Mm-hmm. 
we were flying into space by that point. Um, we had computers, we had, uh, interstate highways. We had, um, so, you know, and also like the civil rights movement and we'd fought, uh, like a, a giant world war. We had a, a whole, a, like a whole different world, but also little things like there were washing machines in the house now. And, um, you know, everybody had a toaster, which are small things, but would have changed the quality of life. And then from 65 to the present, other than, as you say, iPads, we haven't really moved the ball forward that much. Like we haven't gone much further into space. Like we made it to the moon in a few short years and then that's pretty much been it. You know, we keep sending stuff up there more or less doing the same thing slightly better. Right. Um, you know, by 1965 we'd already invented the fastest plane and right. flown it the fastest. You could take a car from 1965 and drive it on the road today where you couldn't really do that with a Model T. The toasters are the same. Um, like pretty much the, the, the front facing side of technology, it's really not that much different. Light bulbs are the same. What's changed between 65 and now is, you know, almost 100% social. The difference socially between the way, I mean, in the way that people interacted in 1960 versus 1920 wasn't really that different. There was still a lot of, you know, if you were gay in 1920 and gay in 1960, um, you might have even had uh, felt more liberated in 1920, although probably not. But you know, there wasn't any visib- any more visibility. And if you were black in America, you were still experiencing the same uh, prejudices, institutionalized, without redress. And so forth and so on, right? I mean, there was not, society was still pretty, um, was stratified in the same way. And since then, in the, in the 40 plus years, 50 years now, like the world has, has changed as, as dramatically, I think in terms of just, and then globally too life expectancy, freedom from disease, um, freedom from hunger, and this explosion of new rights and new new consciousnesses. Right, right, right. Tons of social change. Right. In a, in a very short period of time, in a time that's super condensed and co- compressed is probably a better word. Yeah. Compared to what we had. So you're saying that as opposed to inventions and, and things that have come out that have changed the whole world, 
on, wow, I can get to that neighboring town in 15 minutes instead of four hours while you're walking in the rain. You're saying that most of this change is occurring socially. And wouldn't you say that most of that's because of the internet? No, I would say it was because of the, the technology in the, in the 40 years prior to that. I think the airplane did more to level the social playing field in the world than almost anything else did. You know, the airplane ha- is the thing that made it. But I mean, prior to the airplane, if you lived in a major American city, how many people from India would you see in a typical day? Right, sure. None, maybe. The, the answer is none, Yeah. right? Or I mean, every once in a while you would see someone who was there as a diplomat. Like how many, I remember the first time I met a Vietnamese person and I was in college and it was exotic. Like I wanted to talk to them like, you're from Vietnam? And they were like, yeah. I'm like, wow, Vietnam, all the way from Vietnam? Yeah, we're here in America now as a Vietnamese person. And they were not, you know, they were like from Vietnam. Yeah. Um, and that was 1988. Uh, and that was not, uh, it wasn't that we didn't have airplanes before that, but we had been at war with Vietnam and we had only just in 1988 started to uh, have like a diplomatic opening. There were plenty of people from Vietnam and America that were, that had emigrated after the war, but they were living in, in concentrated communities in Louisiana and Texas and places like that. I had never met someone from Vietnam. Um, so I think the airplane and the, you know, the labor saving technologies made a lot more people, um, what I guess you would say wealthy, wealthy enough to travel, mm-hmm. uh, wealthy enough to say like, I'm going to try, you know, I'm, I'm a Persian, but I'm going to go to Paris and see what, see what's going on. But also, um, like the post-war United Nations mentality, the one world mentality. I mean, I don't think my, I don't think any of our parents who are um, old enough to have had us would have in their 20s walked down the streets in an American city and seen anywhere near I mean, not within a million miles of the diversity of people that we see now. And when I put that same question to my mom, because my dad came back and he had quizzed everybody in the old folks home and they all felt like the second half of the, like the, the more recent years from 1965 to the then present, um, 2005 or whatever it was when I asked him this. They all felt that 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 was the bigger change. And I was surprised by that because biplanes to moon seemed like a pretty big, pretty startling acceleration. Right. But you know, in 1965, everybody still wore a suit to work and most of, and you know, and the country club still didn't accept Jews and 
if you were out in the day in in the city, most of the people you met were white. And if they were black, they were working in a different strata of jobs. And so for them, like that, the, that second transition was astonishing. And my mom says like the, what she loves most about it is that she sees, she sees girls. She, this is how she describes it. She sees girls of different races walking together, holding hands, talking like clearly friends. And she said in, when I was a girl, when I was an adult woman, earlier on in this century, it was just impossible. You could not have had a group of four girls of different races who were all friends. It would just not have ever occurred. Right. Um, and so when she sees that, she's just like, that is the, that's the progress. These young girls who are unconscious of, you know, that it's, it doesn't enter into their their friendship calculation. And she says, you know, and that goes all the way to, you know, women in their thirties, I think she thinks. And older than that, it's, it's much rarer. I mean, you can have a work friend, right? But it's much rarer that, that people over 30 have, have that many friends that are different races. Right. Um, so, you know, like I think the internet has only just um, the internet seems like it's working almost as a uh, like a, a not a brainwashing machine, although it is that too, but it's like a the internet is serving to erase that progress in people's minds younger people who didn't have who didn't live pre-internet can only see the world through the um through the aperture of the internet which has deci- the internet has decided that we've made no progress that the world is just <laughs> as bad as it ever was right that no one prior to today ever had any success in achieving a better world that there was no feminism before today there was no um, there was no civil rights movement before today and everyone then we're all still living in the exact same prison we were living in, in 1920 until this, you know, heroic new generation came to save us all. Uh, and, and that's the, that's the, the, I think maybe the most disappointing thing about the internet to me is that it has, it's rewritten recent history to, in some ways, because because every time someone encounters an injustice now, it is, um, it's put up on a big billboard for all to see and for all of us to wring our hands about. That there's never any context for the fact that these injustices are, they're only. Um, or rather, there's no there's no context for how far we've come, how proud we should be, how much progress has been made in in how short a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was. I mean, I was just talking to somebody a few days ago who was saying that right now, 
right now, this very moment, is the most volatile and the most turmoil and the most things changing and happening in, in, in the history of the country at the very least, maybe the world. And I did, I was wondering what you would say to that because to me that didn't really it didn't really ring true to me because I was thinking, well, gosh, like World War II was there was a lot happening on a daily basis back then and, and lots and lots of people in the whole world uh were kind of tuned into it and, and concerned. I don't know if I think how much of it is just that we're aware of what's going on maybe more and more immediately than we were. What, what, what do you think? You know, I was just looking at this. Um, I was just looking at this the other day. Uh, I was looking at the events of the spring of 1965. Um, and just pulled a couple of things out of the spring of 1965. Um, in February of 1965, uh, Malcolm X was assassinated. In March of 1965, um, both the first bombs uh, of the Vietnam War fell and also the first ground troops arrived in Vietnam. Also in March of 65, Martin Luther King marched on Selma. Um, the first cosmonaut to ever walk in space walked in space. Uh, the first war between India and Pakistan began in March of 1965. Um... Gemini 3 was launched. Then in April of 1965, uh, West Germany and Israel established diplomatic relations for the first time. Um, U.S. troops occupied the Dominican Republic to suppress a coup. Then um, in May... Muhammad Ali fought Sonny Liston. Then in June, uh, I Can't Get No Satisfaction was released. <laughs> Is this um, off the top of your head or are you reading a list? No, I just I, I, I just read this list. Oh, oh uh, and the, so this the, is the from memory, day, so, right. Okay, yeah, I got it. So I get it's it. in the top of my head. Um, you know, the Beatles played Shea Stadium. Um, and this is just like within a few months in 65. If you went to a same, to that same sort of five month period in 1968, um, it'd blow your mind what happened during that period. The like world historical events uh, in the sixties and seventies, like George Wallace ran for president of the United States on an openly white supremacist ticket. There were energy crises, um, or <laughs> crises, energy crises in the 70s where the idea was that maybe there would no longer be, you know, like gasoline would be $10 a gallon. And there were lines of cars stretching for miles outside of gas stations that had no gas. Right. Cars just ran out of gas. 
Um, there were famines where millions of people were dying of starvation while the world stood by and watched. And it didn't seem like there was any solution. And it didn't seem like there would ever be a solution that we had entered into a world where every year millions would die of famine. And, uh, you know, Oh, somewhere in there in 1965, the first Watts riots occurred. So cities were burning, like literally like revolution in the streets, cops fighting citizens with dogs and fire hoses, people setting cities on fire. Detroit burned at that time. So it seems to us now like our president and his policies are like the craziest thing that have ever happened. But they're not at all, not at all. Um, you know, during the Reagan administration, they were, the government was waging illegal secret wars and funding them by selling drugs. Um, and they were like respectable people. Mm. That was, those were respectable times. You know, there, there wasn't our, our, our situation right now is like, uh, crazy, but also overwrought. Mm -hmm. The thing is that what your friend should have said is there's never been a time in human history, in the entire human history where there has been more equality, less violence, less um, starvation, less war. Mm -hmm. There's never been a time in human history where life expectancy was greater across the world, where, um, where there was a larger global middle class, where there was as much clean water, as much, um, uh, you know, like less infant death. There's never been less rape than there is now, right now, today. There is less rape than there's ever been before. There's less police brutality. There's less racism than ever before, globally and in the United States. Than there if is you right listen now. to the news, you would think oh, none of those things are true. That's right. And if you, if you listen to the news and didn't think for yourself for one second, you would. You'd absolutely, if you just went on Twitter, you would think that we were living in the most racist, unequal, um, sexist, awful time in history. But it isn't true. It's just that we see it now and we didn't see it before. We comment on it now and we didn't comment on it before. But what we don't, um, what we don't revel in is that it's never been better. We are doing a good job. Like we Americans, 21st century Americans, and our parents, the 20th century Americans, have done amazing work in advancing the cause of human rights and to not celebrate it, to deny ourselves the, the opportunity to celebrate it, to say like, there's so much work that we have left to do is reasonable, but to say none of the work we've done up till now matters. It's all for shit because right now there still exists inequality is to, I mean, it is to misunderstand history. It's to create a culture of hysteria and panic. Like if you were a Russian 
agent, you could do no better than to sow within the American left the idea that we had done nothing and that times were as bad as they'd ever been. Mm -hmm. You couldn't be a better agent of chaos than to take away our triumph. We would like to say thank you so much to Cashfly. Bandwidth for this show and all of the shows that you hear on 5x5 are provided by Cashfly, the world's most reliable CDN. If you are a podcaster like me or if you're in any business where your customers want content that is always available and that is available to you fast, go with Cashfly. It's spelled C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y, Cashfly. And here's what I want you to think about. Imagine having your content one network hop away from all of your customers, whether they're in New York City or Hong Kong. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about outages. They have a 100% solid uptime. That's a 100% SLA. That's crazy, but they do it. And I'll tell you what, we've been with these guys for years and years and years at 5x5. When I launched Fireside.fm, my podcast hosting platform, I talked to them before I was even halfway done building the thing. I said, I want to use Cashfly. I want this content to live on Cashfly because they are the fastest and because I want downloads to be as fast and reliable as they could possibly be. So go check this out by going to 5x5.cashfly.com. Again, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y, 5x5.cashfly.com is the URL to go to. Just visiting that URL lets them know that you are listening to this program. And when you're there, go check it out. Amazing service, and I sure do appreciate their ongoing support. Thanks very much, Cashfly. I mean, the, the, the Soviets always situated themselves against the United States as being a classless society and therefore one that was less racist. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the propaganda posters of the Soviet Union of that period, it's always a, you know, people from around the world because the Soviets were trying to influence politics in Africa and in, in um, the Middle East and in Asia. And so there would always be <clears throat> 10 faces on the, on the poster and there'd be, you know, a representative face from each continent. And that was their, their, um, their counter to the American civil rights problems in the sixties and seventies was look over here in the global communist revolution, everyone is equal and there is no racism. Now the Russians are as racist as a people can be. Hmm. Um, but that was the kind of, um, that was the the hot take that they were shooting for globally. They wanted the they wanted the revolutionaries of Southern Africa or of Central America to think, well, do we want to side with the United States where they're spraying their own citizens with water hoses, or do we want to go with this, you know, this bucolic picture of um, of you know all the world's races living together in a melting pot? That was the Russian plan. Well, now history has shaken out that that global uh, proletariat revolution didn't really produce a world of uh, unity and equality any more than the capitalist rapaciousness and American, you know, the the, the awkward violent American experiment experiment. 
but you know, I'm sure there, I'm sure that for every, we think about those Russian bots, um, going on Facebook and, and getting Trump people all riled up with fake news. Yeah. But they're fake newsing the shit out of the left too. Absolutely they are. And I, and it drives me crazy that the left doesn't recognize it. That because the, you know, because the right is really easy to provoke. You post a thing on Facebook that says like, these trans people want to steal our bathrooms and make our kids look at their penises. Right. And the, you know, and the little old ladies in Texarkana are like, yeah, you know, no, they're easy to, to manipulate, we think. But there are so many hourly, hourly, hourly provocations of the left that aren't, that aren't based on misinformation as much as they are just these sort of, they're colored in this way of like, like your friend was saying, there's never been a worse time mm. than now. Mm -hmm. There's never been, you know, like take to the streets. This is our moment to start a armed revolution against the, against the oppressive, uh, you know, white capitalism. And it's like, that's just as much to my eye, just as much a provocation that is not coming organically from, from the people, from the way people think, but is being like seeded in the culture because people love to pick the, pick the, those banners up and run through the streets going, look what I read. Look what I read. This has to be true. But like every time I see someone on the, on the left advocate for armed revolution, and that includes all the way to like Nazi punching. And I got in, I got in a, you know, big argument with people a year ago about Nazi punching. And I read it all the time. People that are reasonable, middle-aged, left-leaning people who are like, punch a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, we taught, you talked about that on one of these. Yeah. But all the, all the calls for armed revolution, it just makes me laugh and laugh and laugh how, how soft-minded that stuff is. Like, there is no armed revolution that's going to happen in the United States that benefits anyone but the most fascistic, fascistic, whichever one it is, fascistic or fascist. Yeah, it's fascistic. Fascistic. It's, it's got to be fascistic. It couldn't be fascistic. That's a ridiculous word that only um, only an idiot would say. Fascistic. It, yeah, that's. Uh, it's yeah, only, that's right. And any any quote unquote armed revolution is only going to be a fascist revolution. There's no, you know, if you if if you honestly think that the left is going to rise up and through armed struggle overthrow the overthrow Western capitalism and impose by force a, um, a equality. You're just not, you just haven't read enough books. There's no, it, it, it's, it's, it's laughable. And also it's premised on like false premises. As I say, things are going good. Trump is an, is a bump in the road. 
And I know there's a lot of people on the internet that would say, oh, well, you can afford to say that because you're a middle-aged white guy. But no, that's a dumb thing to say also. Everyone's lives are better now than they were. If you are, if you are 20 years old now, you're, no matter what your, your um, orientation, no matter what type of person you are or what you aspire to, you have more opportunity, you have more freedom, you have more justice now than you would have if you'd been born 20 years ago or 40 years ago or a thousand years ago. And, and progress isn't slowing, you know, like this conservative revolution is a concern and it should be, and we should be talking about it, not, um, you know, not like this strange language that we have now where everything is so completely black and white. There's no way to talk about the 50% of the United States that feels differently from you without denouncing them, denouncing them and then being somehow forced to denounce Hitler at the same time. Like, well, which side are you on? Do you support Hitler? It's like, do I support Hitler? Can you not say like things have, things have never been better without being accused of being Hitler? It's very frustrating. There is also, I think there is a, I don't know what the right word is for it, but there is a culture of people who are, look if they're not looking to be offended, they're on high alert in case they get offended by something. They're, they're looking for, it's like they're ready to go. They're right on the edge. They're almost like, their radar is on for something that could be interpreted as an offense against them or, or, or somebody else. And so I think part of that's good because what it means is that we have an improved and increased awareness of what the hell we're saying, you know, and of how it can affect people. And, uh, and, and maybe we can do good by the things that we say and do, but I also feel like there is a highly reactive atmosphere where even even things that are, you know, it's like people are looking for meaning in things that uh, where there isn't any. Do you do you see that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I just doing a bad job of explaining it? No, I don't think you're doing a bad job. There's a In the in the sixties, I mean, when we talk about postmodernism and poststructuralism, we're talking about a, a a theory of of the world mm-hmm. that is based on the idea that texts, right, uh, books, but also movies. Um, and in general, you know, language creates reality and that structures that are buried in language are, are, they build realities. Right. And those structures can, 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 and for a long time did go completely unexamined. And so in examining them, 
you realize that things are set up a certain way. It's like, it's just like the SAT test is set up to prefer people who went to suburban high schools. Right. Um, but like language, uh, language creates these realities and, and so you enter into a situation where there is no objective reality. And this was the, this was the theory, right? The introduction of this theory was, was shocking and novel and really intellectually challenging and exciting because it felt like part of a, part of a moment in the 20th century where everything was possible, where the, where we were discarding the old order across the board in a lot of different ways, economically, politically. And here this literary theory presented us with what seemed like, I mean, to, to an intellectual and to a culture of intellectuals, it was extremely exciting because it, because all of a sudden this world that we were living in of books and of semiotics and, and philosophy, all of a sudden it had political power. All of a sudden we could use, we could use these theories to actually attack the structures of power and, and effectively, you know, not just critique them, but, but it, there was an active component to post-structuralism that, um, where we had, we had a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing. And that theory disseminated through everything on the intellectual left. There was no thing that couldn't be critiqued. And it was, and it was connected to Marxism philosophically. Um, and, and then in practice, right? Practically connected. But what we have, what we forgot somewhere along the way is that it was a theory. It's actually called theory. I mean, that's what, when you learn it in the university, you're studying theory is that's the description of it. We forgot that the word theory has meaning, right? It does not mean it's different from, um, proof. And what's interesting about the framework of that theory, the framework of post-structuralism is that it allows for an awful lot of permutations. You can take that theory, the basic structure of that theory and apply it to a lot of things, apply it across the board, even to every you know, to the way language is used everywhere, to the way power is structured everywhere, to the way um, interpersonal power, pe- pe- just interpersonal relationships, but also, you know, big, big structure, structural right. relationships. Right. And now we're living in a world where that theory undergirds a lot of what, a lot of what our uh, political movements are now, and it undergirds it kind of invisibly. Most people haven't studied post-structuralism. 
postmodernism. Most people haven't read those books and they don't know what those books were critiquing in the first place, right? They're like the power of that moment in the sixties and seventies was that every, all the academics then knew what had come before, you know, they, they'd read the, the books and understood the, the language of structuralism enough to have a post structuralism. Right. And so there was this response, you know, this, this, um, this counter that was so exciting, but now we're living in a world where no one has, you know, we were along the way excluded from what came before because it was determined to be, it was determined that now we had entered into a new world and the stuff before was somewhat heretical. And so we, we are now, um, so now that influences us, uh, everywhere, everywhere in our culture. Um, and so things like tear down the Confederate monuments, Mm -hmm. there is within the logic of, I mean, there's, there's the surface logic of it, which is like, this is a racist thing. Um, and it shouldn't be in the public square of this town, which now is a very diverse town, which has, you know, which is aspiring to have equality between people. We shouldn't have a statue in the middle of the town that is of a very divisive character and very, um, like exclusionary. Let's take it down. Like that makes sense at a, at, I mean, that's all the argument kind of you need. But beneath it, there is all this other argument about the power of representation, the power of images, the, um, you know, the, the, the fact that the statue, the presence of the statue disempowers people is a thing that we all accept at face value, but it is a theory, right? It's also possible that everybody walks past the statue every day and tips their hat sarcastically at it and goes, Hey, how you like us now? Fuck you. And gets on with their day. Right. <laughs> right I mean, right. that you could have a, you could make a case that, the, that leaving the statue up was good for people because it gave them so it, you know, it gave them a place to piss or you could, you know, you could come up with a, a, a half a dozen different theories about what that, what the presence of that statue does, what it communicates. But we live in a world where we understand that we, our theories have led us to conclude that, um, that what that is, is a symbol of oppression. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is a symbol of ongoing oppression. Uh, even when that is like, uh, that's a very difficult theory to prove. You can anecdotally say there's still oppression and these statues are still here. And so if we take these statues down, our theory is there will be less because this, because we don't have this state endorsed symbol of, um, of racial inequality. It will 
we will have less inequality in the aftermath of taking the statue down. Like that is, that's the, that's the premise and it's premised on the power of images. And what, what you were describing is that, that world that is premised on the power of words. So all of the theory about bullying, about the words that we don't use now, that you know, only in the last ten years did we did we decide really that there was going to be a list of words that were no longer usable, and that list kind of keeps growing. Words that intrinsically have so much power, and it's almost universally power to oppress, power to exclude. Bad words. That in a lot of cases are just words or they all, they're all just words. Um, in some cases they were just descriptive words or words that, that took on a meaning. And what we're forbidding is we're forbidding an entire word because it took on a meaning somewhere along the line. Right. So again, all of that is, is predicated on accepting a theory of language and of the world-making power of words. That if you say a word, if you if you if you say if you speak a certain way, if you say certain words, if you um, if you use language or if language is allowed to be used certain ways, it it is. Um, it isn't the laws that are creating inequality. It isn't policies at work that are creating inequality. It is the, it is these, um, these words which seep in and generate, uh, generate in unequal worlds. And so we, you know, so anyway, this, this culture you're describing of people that are like on guard all the time looking yeah. for, yeah, yeah, yeah offense they're operating um with a philosophy which is not that they're just sensitive they're not just getting their feelings hurt mm -hmm. they are on guard for language which is creating a world of inequality and they see themselves as combating those worlds, you know, like stopping those, uh, situations before they take root or pointing at them and calling them out and saying, there it is, you know, there it is again. You just called me Darlin and Darlin is a, is a dismissive diminutive way to, to, um, to describe me. And that is part of a systemic attempt to disempower women who stand up for themselves at work and all of that is, you know, it all makes sense to us because we've all been educated within that theoretical system. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's now, it's now become our lingua franca where you, there is no, there is no counter argument to that theory other than the one that you see coming from people who are like, what? I was just saying darling because I was being friendly. That's just how we talk. And then the, you know, the, the left is like, 
boo, like you are exactly the kind of, that's exactly the sort of ignorant and depressive, you know, language using, right? Like there's these two, these two sides of it. And one side is hyper attuned to a, to a theoretical approach to how the world is built. And the other side is just not, they aren't thinking that way. They don't have that theory. They didn't come up in that theory culture and they're bumbling along. And it's why you see so many Trump supporters characterize themselves as like just normal people, right? Like fun people who just like to have barbecues and are just normal Americans. What makes them feel that way is not that they're um, necessarily like comfortable within a white supremacist culture or whatever it is that the left would, would jump to describe that as from their perspective. It's just, they don't understand what we're talking about. All they said was this simple thing and they, and people are jumping down their throats all the time and they just don't have a background for, for feeling that language is that powerful, that it's that universe building. And unfortunately on our side, we don't have a very good understanding of why we're doing it either. We understand it. We understand the system of it. Like we understand the technology of using that idea to attempt to make the world better by saying like, well, like the, like the, the guys, uh, my brother, my brother and me said that they were on their Dungeons and Dragons podcast. They were trying to, um, figure out what their characters were going to be. And one of them was like, well, I want to have this character and I'm afraid to, I'm afraid to do it wrong. So I'm just going to make this character green. It's just the, this person is going to have green skin and that's going to save me from, you know, a wave of condemnation <laughs> from the internet. If I, you know, if I choose ethnicity wrong for my D and D character, and they made the character green and then immediately were dumped on by thousands of people who said green is symbolic of Jews. Green is the color of Pepe, you know, like just <laughs> there, there wasn't a, there wasn't a way to have a green character without lots and lots and lots of people finding a way to you know, and not just finding a way, but feeling very strongly that that character was um, creating an unsafe world. So, I mean, I like I'm I try to be respectful of people's opinions, but that's just confusing to me. I mean, yeah. I. And I maybe that's my own privilege and, and whatever getting in the way of me being able to understand it. But it seems like you can't you can't ever do something right. You know, I th I like. Did you hear that that there was and it wasn't really serious, but it was mentioned in some report from Austin's Equity Office, uh, where they there were a number of. Uh, things, whether they were streets or city institutions or other things that were 
they weren't named like in honor of the Confederacy, but they said that they were Confederacy adjacent. Yeah. Or like, well, the actual quote, and I, I just found the article for it. It says where they were within the spirit of the resolution representing segregate segregation, racism and, or, or slavery. And so on this list, there were a number of streets, uh, like Littlefield street, Tom green street, uh, Dixie drive, Confederate Avenue, plantation road and so they proposed changing the names of some of these uh these streets and there's i think um barton springs which is a a a well-known place here they were that might have been on the list but on this list is something that was sort of like secondary considerations things we might want to think about was austin itself because uh the city of Austin was named after Stephen or Stephen Austin, the father of Texas. I'm sure you know the father of Texas. Absolutely. Um, but apparently, back when in 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 the olden times when Texas was Tejas, and I believe Mexico wanted to uh, ban slavery in the province of Tejas. Uh, he said his quote was something like, well, you, you know, I'm opposed to that because if you free the slaves, they would become vagabonds and a nuisance and a menace. That's his exact quote. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know what else he did that, that, you know, maybe made people think that he was pro-slavery other than that comment. Maybe that he had a lifetime of, of being pro-slavery. I don't know. Uh, but that's the one in any any article that I've ever read. That's the quote that they always refer to, and so they were actually in in this document that they produced. They were actually saying we should con- we should consider changing the name of Austin because it was named after Stephen Austin, Stephen Austin, um, at, because he made this comment, mm-hmm. and. That makes me question the fact that, like, I've been in Austin now for over seven years. I knew the city was named after Mr. Austin, but I didn't, um, I didn't know that he made that quote, uh, or said that, I should say. But at some point, you have to think that, like, it had... Can't, can't things ever take on a different meaning? Can Austin not have that meaning to some people? Or, or is it once something like that has happened, that's it. It's, it's forever tarnished. That's what it means now. And like once people learn that, you know, that, that a change has to be made. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, that I, I think that would be an overreaction. Um, you know, at some point, like when I grew up, everything was offensive to everybody eventually. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it was just, it, it was like certain things you, you would say, well, okay, so like here's a good example of this. Um, my grandfather 
was not allowed to get a master's or doctorate degree because he was Jewish. He, he would apply to the programs and they would, they would reject him. And he was never, he, he continued to get education, but he couldn't go to that level. And even though in, in his, um, when he was working for the government doing the, um, you know, the tank armor uh, and designing, he was a metallurgist. Even though he like led the whole group that they were in and was one of the most respected scientists in, in his uh, department or group or however it would have been called back then. He couldn't go and get an advanced degree because they would, they would say no, simply no. Uh, he was rejected every time. But he didn't let that stop him from being a great scientist. He didn't let it stop him from having an incredibly successful career, including getting you know presidential medals and other things. Um, you know, I'm sure he, he didn't like it. And when he told me about it, it, I could tell that it was something that at the time bothered him quite a bit. Um, you know, but the reason that I mention that is that I really think that at some point we, we have to be able to look at things and say, you know, this, this was named during a different time. Does that mean we need to change the name? Does that mean we need to remove the statue? Does that mean be, because that person wasn't 100% perfect and maybe had a bad perspective, does that wash away anything good that they might have done? And then you can bring up the whole thing of, well, okay, well, what about the experiments the Nazis did during the Holocaust? You know, well, can we use the information that, that came from that? You know, these are hard questions. I don't know if there's an easy answer for any of them. You know, I mean, there's people who are probably upset about it right now. Like right now. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Because I want to be sensitive to those people, but I also don't think it's necessary to change the name of Austin because of a comment that he made. And, and I don't understand the context of that comment. I don't know what his overall beliefs were. Was he a horrible person or was he a good person? He's the father of Texas. There would be no Texas without, without him. So, I mean, is, well. but it, well, is that good or bad though? And you could say, well, the whole fact that Texas exists, it was stolen from Mexico. So there should be no Texas. You know what I'm saying? Like, where does it stop? I'm asking you, where's this stop? Oh, you know? oh well, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Where it stops is that. Do we just start <laughs> over and call it street one, street two, street three, or A, B, C, and D, and that's it. That's all we've got, numbers and, and letters for every street. The names of towns should just, we should switch them to, to be numbers, numerical. I live in town 175. But the five has significance to some people, so we have to rename that. It'll be 177 now, because everyone can agree seven is a lucky number. Except for people who it's not, they're that. petitioning to change it. <coughs> What's important to me is to recognize that there, are, there have always been intellectual fashions. And I don't think that Postmodernism and post-structuralism are are inaccurate or bad. Um, it's just that they became, I mean, just like just like Marxism 
was a theory of of economics and of I mean it was it was a great theory of economics because it was really about the you know human interaction it described it was like like a lot of great theories it was descriptive right before there was before Marx and Engels we thought about um the way people exchanged labor for money in a certain way and then they came along and Nothing in the world had changed, but by virtue of their description, we understood differently. We understood better um, what the what the dynamic was, and it was like a lot of descriptions. Um, it was really good up to a point. You know, it described something in a new way that that was insightful. When that converts to a theory of a political system, you know, you, you start to get, um, you, you start to encounter problems because every political system kind of talks about people in the aggregate, like the workers or the, you know, the banker. Right. And, when you're talking about it as a description that's meant to be insightful, like, look, the workers do this and the owners do this mm -hmm. and it creates this and, and this is the dynamic behind that relationship. It's insightful. You go, oh, right. But when you take it that next step and say, therefore, the workers need to do this politically to counter the owners who are going to be doing this and the result of that is going to be a better world. You've, you've just made a few big leaps, right? That the workers are ever going to, that, that they are a cohesive, uh, group that ca is capable of acting as a group acting as an entity. But the biggest jump is that's going to create a better world. Like you've described a situation you can, you've described the inequality to to then leap ahead and say you have a solution to it and that the description of it suggests the solution is like where theory crashes into politics and starts to be starts to have a, like a be a wobbly wagon right and in the case of marxism right we we have spent 150 years kind of globally trying to figure out how do we implement this insight to make a better world? And there have been some pretty, pretty dramatically bad attempts. We're living now in this world where post-structuralism, which also was, or post-modernism was also descriptive and fascinating. And, um, and really insightful and changed the world. But as soon as it started to get applied as like, okay, now what we need to do is um, take the insights here and the, the, and the suggestion of these insights is that we take the following action. And in the, in post-structuralism, I mean, because it happened so much in universities, that was the natural ground for action too. And what happened was the first things that got changed were curricula. 
we, we didn't study books the same way. And pretty soon after that, we didn't study the same books. And so, so it, it was a, initially a revolution that happened in universities and it produced generations of s- smart people, people that went to college and were the smarts at the college, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, John Hodgman studied literary theory at Yale um, and studied literary the- theory at Yale when Yale was a hotbed of precisely this kind of thinking. So he's not just somebody who, who studied literature at the University of Arizona. He's like seeped in some fundamental um, aspects of this world. And a lot of people we know are. But the way that those, the way it was taught at universities was not like, here's a theory and here are some other theories. It, you know, it wasn't like teach the controversy like, Oh, well maybe the world was created in seven days or maybe there's evolution. You know, it was kind of the same thing. Like literary theory is now the theory of evolution and anything that any counter theory or other reading of history is essentially creationism. That's how dismissive we are of it. Or any, any perception of the dynamic between people that isn't, um, that doesn't have a kind of Marxist reading at its core is creationism. It's a, it's an older theory, right? History came to an end at a certain point when we realized the truth of all the, of all the things. And now we're just, now we just need to apply that and bring the, bring all the dumbs up to speed. But it's a fashion and it's a fashion that now is, you know, going on its sixth decade and, and it's, it's culture wide because all of the smart people in our culture were educated under the system, under that way of thinking, all the journalists, all the, um, college professors, all the writers, even if you weren't directly educated that way, you were within that culture. We all are who are, who are bookie people. And so we're not, and we weren't, I mean, I studied the comparative history of ideas in college. And so I started with the, with the Bible or with, with Plato or with mm. Homer okay. you know, and worked all the way through Augustine and, Descartes and, and, um, Hegel and then, you know, or I'm sorry, declaration of independence and then through to Nietzsche and then to, uh, Derrida or whatever. I mean, the whole survey of it and studied it in a way that, that suggested that each thing in its time came before and prepared the ground for the next thing that it was evolutionary. And, and although you can look at Socrates and see a lot of that stuff just leapfrogged all the, I mean, it, 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 it threads through all of history. You can read Socrates now and still be amazed by it and still go like, Whoa, very insightful. Um, and some of those were dead ends. Some of those philosophies kind of wandered off and, and burned out. 
but in the in the main, there is this thread through history of that that feels evolutionary. But it's really hard not to s- situate yourself as the end of history, that we are now there, right? That where we are is with a complete understanding and now all of our struggles are just revolutionary ones where we need to it, like enforce our way of thinking, our new, our new, uh, our finally realized understanding of the world. But of course we're just in the middle somewhere. What we don't know is what is going to come next. What we don't know is the next fashion. What we don't know is the, is what happens next. And I suspect it will be corrective that there are some, there are brilliant writers, there are thinkers, there are people who are like, wait a minute, which is how all, how all things like this come to pass. Somebody says, wait a minute, I've been thinking all of these, you know, all of the conventional wisdom seems wrong to me now, now that I have this new insight and that insight, whatever it will be, and I, and I have a suspicion of what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it will again feel like a new liberation when it happens. And what we're being liberated from may be not what we, not what we think we need to be liberated from. You know, nobody, nobody knows what the next big surprise is going to be. Like philosophically whether it will be economic or whether it will be mm-hmm. social, or whether it'll be what. So I'm not too bent out of shape about whether or not they want to change the streets in Austin. Right. And change the name of Austin to Medgar Everstown. Because I'm always thinking like, this is just in the middle. We're just in the middle somewhere. Um, Paris has been called Paris for many, 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 many hundreds of years, hundreds upon hundreds. But, you know, if Austin, if Columbus, Ohio ends up being called um, Tecumseh, Ohio, I feel like that that is as much a monument to our time as any statue we could erect. Right? Like that is that may end up being our legacy. Our statues may all be the plinths of the statues we tore down. Mm-hmm. And that it will be how we're remembered by people in the future who may return the name of Austin to Austin. I mean, Stalingrad is not called Stalingrad now. Um, and it was, and Leningrad isn't Leningrad now. So, and it wasn't Leningrad before, but it's been a long time being Leningrad in the middle. So, you know, things like this do happen and, and you leave your, you leave your mark as best you can. I don't, I don't think that post-structuralism, I don't think post-modernism is very useful anymore as a descriptor. I think it has become garbled. Mm. And that what was interesting about it 
what was what was interesting about the theory um it was never intended to be a political system it was never it was not never intended to be a uh, a way of governing nations it was reactive like a lot of theory is it looked at the thing that had come before and it judged it according to a new principle but it wasn't necessarily creative and i feel like that's the world we're living in now we are judging everything but we've stopped creating or or rather the system that we use to judge is not creative. It doesn't make something new to take the place of the old. It just wants to, to dismantle the old. And it presumes naively that simply dismantling the old is enough to, to allow something new and beautiful to flower. But that is not true. And that's, you know, that's what's so scary about this idea of a leftist revolution. Mm -hmm. There's an awful lot of talk about tearing down the, uh, the racist, classist, sexist status quo. And a lot of that talk, as we said earlier, as I said earlier, is it plays up all the things that are the worst about about our world, but gives no credence to the fact that we have, that all of those systems are like actively engaged in change have been for hundreds of years. The American experiment is succeeding largely. There's no place in the world that has the rights and freedoms that we have here, even with Trump and his minions, you know, banging at the gates. Um, nothing can, erase the progress we've made in the short term there, you know, there can be new unenforceable laws that have to wend their way through the courts. But both sides feel that way about the other, the other's laws in the main. Um, there's never been a better system, but the idea that we need to, that this, that we need to tear that system down and burn it usually is not accompanied with a, with a very clearly articulated better plan. It always is based on the idea that if you tear it down, what comes in its place will be better. If you eliminate the police, what will happen is that man's better nature will protect us. That every, it's that really it's the police that are the problem and not, um, like the, like crime is a product of police brutality rather than that crime is something that that we need police for. So every time, you know, every time I read on the internet someone who says that we're living in a culture that is so completely bankrupt that the only thing to do is destroy it. I never I never see their follow-up tweet where they outline where they have a new declaration of independence and a new constitution that sets up a different system. Like you can't just put a link to the, the democratic socialists at the end of that tweet and feel like that 
is sufficient to explain why we would destroy our world what and replace it with what just just the the people the workers i mean that's it's not just naive it's like it's just it's just insufficient <laughs>